It has been a grim companion to the death toll of COVID-19. While the virus has killed tens of thousands of Americans, homicide rates have also been soaring. Nationally, homicides rose by 30% in 2020, the largest single-year increase on record. Last year saw a smaller increase, but still an upward trend. Philadelphia saw more than 500 homicides last year, eclipsing its previous record from 1990. But it was hardly alone. Louisville, Albuquerque, Columbus, Ohio, and Milwaukee are just a few of the other cities that set new records for homicides last year. It has been a trend playing out almost everywhere across the country. But one major U.S. city stands out as an exception, Boston. In 2020, Boston recorded 56 homicides, pretty close to the city's five-year average of 51. What's more, last year that number fell to just 40. To put that in some perspective, Baltimore, with nearly 100,000 fewer residents, had 337 homicides last year. Public safety officials are always quick to say that one homicide is too many, but these Boston numbers are extraordinarily good news and something we probably don't stop to consider quite enough. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine, and today on the podcast, we are going to do just that, talking about how Boston has avoided the bloody increase in homicides that has swept across nearly every corner of the country. To help understand what's going on, we're joined by Tito Santos Silva, the executive director of Boston Uncornered. Boston Uncornered is an innovative nonprofit that cites as its mission redirecting the entrepreneurial, networking, and leadership skills of gang-involved youth from violence and incarceration to obtain a college credential and family-sustaining wage. Tito, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Also with us is Thomas Apt, a senior fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice and chair of its Violent Crime Working Group. He is also the author of the 2019 book, Bleeding Out, the devastating consequences of urban violence, and a bold new plan for peace in the streets. Thomas, it's great to have you with us also. Great to be here. So Thomas, help us understand what's been going on nationally. The spike in homicides has been really alarming. Uh, It has been. Uh, What we've been seeing since the beginning of the pandemic, or really since the beginning of the year in 2020, is a really startling increase in uh, homicides driven in particular by community gun violence, meaning you know, gun violence that's, or violence that's per- per- perpetrated with firearms that's happening in community settings. Uh, what we saw in 2020 was a 29% increase in homicides and that's, uh, that's breaking all of our records. We've never seen uh, a spike that large really since the beginning of when the unified crime reports that the FBI keeps uh, were were started. Um, And we saw a, uh, we we don't have the final data, but it looks like there's about a 9% increase in homicide nationally for uh, this past year in 2021. And that's basically resulting in in a lot of cities, probably between 10 or 15 cities uh, having the highest homicide counts that they've ever had. And you mentioned Philadelphia, that's one in particular. Memphis is another, Indianapolis is another, um, Portland um, is another. But as you said, uh, Boston is going uh, in the opposite direction, and that's a very good thing. And what is it that, you know, is behind this? I know that, you know, often 
it's never a, one single factor. What do you think have been uh, the factors involved here? And certainly it seems like the pandemic has some, has some role in this, given how, how it sort of coincided so closely with the, with the, with the virus. Uh, sure, Michael. Uh, you know, uh, here at the council, we've been looking uh, very carefully at this. And in fact, we convened as you mentioned earlier, a violent crime working group to study just this issue. Uh, and so we've looked at it very carefully and there really seems to be sort of a perfect storm of factors uh, at the national level that are all combining uh, to drive homicide and community gun violent, violence rates higher. Uh, the first is obviously the pandemic. Um, you know, the pandemic has actually concentrated in precisely the same communities uh, where gun violence concentrates. And so those communities have been hit doubly hard by these double pandemics. Uh, in addition, and, and, and in particular, uh, as we know, gun violence concentrates among a surprisingly small network of people in every city. And those people have really... Uh, been disproportionately impacted by both of these things. And so they have been placed under tremendous uh, stressors. And then in addition, all of the institutions and organizations and systems that we have for responding to gun violence, they've also been placed under tremendous pressure as well. And that's obviously, you know, the police and courts and prosecutors and corrections, but that's also EMS, that's also hospitals. And very importantly, it's also all that good community-based work that was being done to engage these highest-risk people, uh, you know, like the work that's being done by Boston Uncornered. And you know, all of those efforts were temporarily suspended. They had to be as a result of the pandemic, and we lost a lot of ground during that time. And then the final explanation, um, as is always the case, unfortunately, in the United States, is guns. Uh, there was a, uh, a record-breaking uh, surge in gun sales beginning at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, and it hasn't slowed down much since. And unfortunately, uh, when you get a lot of guns uh, into the market, some fraction of those guns eventually fall into the wrong, wrong hands and are used in crimes. And that's what we're seeing around the country. We're seeing not just that there's lots of gun sales, but we're seeing an increase in the illegal gun carrying. In many cities, we're seeing cops making less stops and less arrests, but still recovering more firearms. So that's a really brief sort of description of what's been happening. It's the pandemic, um, it's guns. Um, and I should also say the, the final thing is um, all of the social unrest that the nation has been dealing with following uh, the brutal murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And uh, that event and many of the events like it uh, in you know, previous years, Michael Brown, I, I mean, the list goes on and on and on, Tamir Rice, those events have really created uh, a crisis of confidence in American policing. And they have really driven uh, uh, cops and communities apart. And that is a huge impediment to effective gun violence reduction, because what we know is that the police are absolutely essential in reducing gun violence, but that they can't do it alone. And that there have to be partnerships between police, 
residents and community groups. And those partnerships uh, in this political hyper-polarized environment are just harder than ever before. And just talk, since you've looked at this question sort of across the country and you've studied Boston as well, just give sort of your the top line take of, of in that context, what you think uh, Boston has, has done so differently or why we're, why we're standing out from this trend. Sure. Well, I think Tito is closer to this issue than I am. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep it brief. I think that, you know, Boston had to weather this storm uh, and is not immune from national events, uh, just like every other city. But I think Boston benefits from a few things. I think Boston benefits, A, from having um, a better than average network of high quality um, uh, community-based providers, places like Boston and Corner places like Roca, inner city weight, weightlifting and others. And people in Boston get that you really need to work with these highest risk individuals. And, uh, and so we benefit from the excellent work of those organizations. I also think that while people in Boston may not recognize it, um, the Boston Police Department is a pretty darn good department compared to other departments and actually has better relationships with community members than you see in many other places. That certainly doesn't mean it's perfect, but you have to trust me, I do this work all over the country. And if you think relationships are tough in Boston uh, between police and community members, you really should go other places and, and see how bad it can be. And then I think finally, uh, you know, Boston has learned hard lessons uh, going all the way back to the 90s. Uh, and has really learned the benefits of not having a sort of all of one or all of the other approach. So we, uh, I think that, you know, policymakers in Boston are, you know, pretty smart about this. They understand that it's got to be, you know, community-based groups. It's got to be uh, public safety. And it's also got to be public health. We've got a lot of great public health organizations and great uh, network of hospitals as well. So that's just a bit, but as I said, you know, Tito is closest to this. Absolutely. And, and Tito, uh, let's turn and get sort of your take from the ground level, from the work that, that you and Boston Uncornered are doing. What do you, uh, what do you make of Boston's ability to, uh, you know, forgive me for kind of invoking this to sort of dodge the bullet. I, I can't help it, but um, it seems that it, it, it just is striking how, how this national trend has been able to, uh, uh, that we've sort of defied it, I guess. Yeah, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I think, I think it's very much what Thomas has said. Like we, I, I feel like Boston fits in this, in this unique space where we have this collection of like, we have educators and we have academics, we have politicians, we have uh, corrections, we have the police force, we have, you know, the, the DA's office, like, and we have a collection of an am amazing um, innovative organizations in the community that are all coming together and we're realizing and we and we acknowledge that we need to work together like this problem is is significantly bigger than just this morality idea of like these young people are committing crimes and they're just bad people right there's there are so many layers that you know the systemic racism generational and poverty all of these struggles and we're starting to realize like that it's all intertwined. And in order for us to actually heal the community, in order for us to heal the city, we need to act, we need to address it as such. And so we 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 partner with, you know, 
just us, I can only speak directly to what we're doing, but you know, we've, we've, we've had Michelle Wu come to our organization to kind of talk about what they need. And she spoke directly with some of our young people and our students, the, 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 the population, right. Um, to ask them what their needs are. Um, we've, we, we've had support from, from uh, uh, private investors who, who realize that by supporting communities that are uh, more disproportionately impacted by gun violence, we're actually supporting all of Boston, right? It's not this little pocket of, of problems that we can kind of continue to sweep under the rug. And I think Boston has acknowledged that. Um, I think a lot of cities, I think, I think this country has acknowledged that or is coming to that place where we have to acknowledge that with like ARPA funding and federal funding being uh, resources being allocated to, to address gun violence as a whole. Um, but I think Boston, we, we were able to work through that and we're able to connect um, and to build those bridges and to communicate and to support with one another and in a way that is not to fix our young people, but to support them and to help them and to love them as they transition and get through some of these traumas and these experiences. Because the reality is, is uh, very few people ever pick up a firearm when they're functioning at a good, healthy space in a healthy community, in a space where they feel safe and comfortable. And so to just assign this idea of morality, I think is, 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 a, is a failure um, uh, from, from a support perspective. And so I think Boston does a great job of, uh, and has done a great job, and we're gonna continue to do a great job of really meeting our young people where they are and connecting and working together um, to heal our city. And, and as you've said, and as Thomas said, there's kind of this network of innovative groups that have developed approaches over you know a couple of several decades in Boston and your organization Boston Uncornered is is just one of them but I think just to help people understand what we mean by taking that broader approach to dealing with this problem and you know that as Thomas said it can't be a solely a law enforcement point uh, approach it has to be combined with with these efforts on the ground, the community-based ones. Just can you give uh, give folks some understanding of what Boston Uncornered does? What is what is its approach? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we we truly believe that representation does matter inside of our space. And so first and foremost, we hire core influencers. We hire former gang members from these communities, from the communities most disproportionately impacted by gun violence. We go and find former gang members, former former um, adults who, who may have had negative influences inside of their community, and we bring them and empower them to then act as mentors, we call them um, CRAs, but act as mentors in order to go back out into their own community and to start to, you know, connect with the young people from a very, like, realistic perspective, a shared experience. I know what you've been through, and, I, and you know I know what you've been through because I come from the same community and you've seen me around. And so I think that's one thing that we do um, that's really important, but also we provide our young people with a stipend. We understand that it's, it's not a very big one, but it's enough to help some of our young people stop worrying so much about basic needs. And so they can start thinking about what would they do if they didn't have to chase a dollar every day? What would they do with their life if they could dream a little bit more? Um, and I think having those high expectations of, of don't, don't stop at, um, you know, there's a, there's a, story that I like to tell. I met a young person who was 22 years old and he's in a city like Boston. And I said, well, you know, what, what would you like to do? And he said, I just want to get my GED, but I think it's too late. And I said, how, how old are you? He said, I'm 22. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, it's not too late at all. Like, we have so much time. But getting those young people to realize that, like, something inside of their community, inside of this space has made that young man feel as though at 22, it was too late for him to turn his life around. Right. And so, we, we, we can blame him or we can help guide him to bigger dreams, to maybe set goals for 
for graduating college or, or starting his own business, but in the same time, working with our community partners to say, how do we impact the community? So no more young people come up feeling as though their biggest dream is a GED, right? Like we have all of these resources and all these connections right here in this beautiful city to be able to, to, to bridge that and to make it so no young person feels that way. And so at Boston and Cornered, what we try to do is continue to have those conversations. So my job is really the, the easy part is connecting with people and getting them to believe, but our staff, our college uh, readiness advisors, our, our directors are on the ground every day connecting with young people, identifying the right young people, and then being relentless in their pursuit and, uh, and encouragement and then having really high expectations uh, for them to dream bigger than they've ever, ever imagined. And you all have um, one thing that's drawn a lot of attention is uh, you pay people a stipend uh, to stay with the program. They're, I guess, paid maybe if they're taking classes for their GD or at community college. Um, you know, it's it, some people have said it's a little controversial. You're, you know, are you just paying people to stay out of violence or gang activity? You know, would be kind of maybe what a critic might say is this kind of, you know, coddling or, you know, kind of rewarding people who've, who've, uh, who've been the cause of a lot of mayhem in the community. How do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah, no, I can definitely understand that sentiment, but we have to realize that like our young people are victims of, of a lot of, uh, a lot of trauma. Um, when, when, you know, we know that most of our students have experienced some form of gun, gun violence, whether they're the victim of it, whether they're perpetrator, whether their family has been impacted. We know that a lot of our, uh, the young people that we work with, their families have been um, uh, impacted by, you know, systemic racism, with their, you know, forced into redlining into these pockets of, of overpopulation and a lack of resources, a lack of access to, uh, to funding. Um, like there are so many confounded factors. And then to tell these young people who are sometimes 16, 17, 18 years old and are providing, providing money for their families in order to succeed and to have basic needs, food, water, shelter, like heat, things that a lot of us um, in, in, a, in, a, in an affluent you know, state like Massachusetts, we can take for granted. Some of our young people don't even have those things and are really scrambling to meet and make ends meet every single day at 17, 18, 19 years old. And so our thinking is that if we can alleviate some of that pressure, we're not, our, our young people don't have to think about survival every day. They can start to think about what they dream, what they can, where their brain can go for dreaming, right? If I have to feed my little brothers and sisters, if I have to pay rent, if I have to pay, uh, you know, keep the heat on because it's the middle of the winter, I really can't think about going to college because that's a that's a dream. That's long term. I need to think about today right now. I need to think about short term in order to get through it. And so we believe that if and by alleviating some of that pressure, we allow our young people to dream and to think bigger. And uh, and 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 all the like 70 percent of the young people who have engaged with us in their first year have matriculated onto college, um, which is which is really, really um a really big number considering the population that we're working with. Um, and we don't, we'd like to get to everyone in Boston. And that's our goal, right? To scale, to, to provide these resources, to get more data and more information to, to really scale it. But, but I think it helps. And I think it gives our young people just that a little bit of breathing room, right? To, to, to think a little bit bigger than um, in some, in some cases, just their, their neighborhood. And as you said, you know, it's, it's a way to keep people thinking sort of about a broad, the broader, you know, the broader horizon. And it's something that, frankly, kids from middle-class homes, you know, 18 or 19-year-old kids have the luxury to do that, right? They're not generally worried about kind of putting food on the table or or those kind of needs. And how have you, 
been able to do it, you know, during the pandemic. Thomas said that it's been a struggle for groups like yours and that that nationally, you know, maybe that's, again, been one of the sort of several factors that's contributed to the spike in homicides that some of the frontline groups have had to pull back during the pandemic. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the first part is you're right. Like, you know, it's hard to think about if, if you don't have to take it into consideration. And that's, you know, not a, a testament of anyone's value. It's just like, it's really hard to consider like these basic needs. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to have experienced some of that stuff myself, so I can understand that. But also as we moved through the pandemic, um, because of the, the staff members that we've identified and we've, and we've uh, employed and we have working for us and that are like really doing the work, they live in the community with some of these young people, right? Like they are so in, ingrained with them that maybe they can't, you know, directly connect with them and get them to their classes this week because of the pandemic, but we can text them, we can call them, we can FaceTime with them, we can reach out. And in some cases, they live in the same neighborhood. So I can walk by your house and see you from outside and stay, you know, stay on my, you stay on your porch, I stay on the street and just check in with you and say, hey, how are you? And there's a comfort there because it's your community, it's both of your communities. So it doesn't feel like someone's coming in to tell you what to do or you're going into an unfamiliar territory and trying to have a conversation. There's really that ingrained piece. Um, and I think that's what's helped us a lot through this pandemic when we weren't able to necessarily get our young people enrolled in programming or in college or stuff like that. But we were able to maintain those relationships and to keep communication and to continue to love and support and to just be there. Um, and, and that goes a long way. Um, I think I think sometimes we take that for granted, but having somebody who you know is going to love you and care for you and support you with unconditional love and support, um, I think is it was really what um, allowed us to continue to do the work in the pandemic and just shift a little bit to support where they needed it. And how many young people are you kind of reaching, you know, at any given time or currently? Because again, we we often hear that it's a pretty small number of people in the community that are the cause of gun violence. Yes. So we brought, we have on stipend right now, which is where we pay them the money each week, 50 students. That means 50 students are engaged inside of, in, in, in some type of uh, personal development programming, um, educational programming uh, process. And then on top of that, we try to make contact with somewhere between 250 and 300 young people inside of the Boston community each year. And so we kind of, we transition young people to, to have some level of readiness and, and, and wanting to come into the program before we start to pay them the stipend. But our, but our staff members are amazing at cultivating that list and trying to be on top of who is driving the violence in the communities and being um, as proactive as possible and just at least making contact and develop, starting to develop those relationships. So when they are ready or we are in a place to bring them in for a stipend, um, they feel comfortable and can transition easily. And Thomas, uh, this question of scale, I just wonder if you could address a little. So if they have sort of 50 people immediately there that they're engaging and, uh, you know, we've got a, a set of other organizations in the city that, you know, have some, you know, maybe similar capacity. You know, nobody, nobody out there is reaching a thousand kids, you know, intensively at once. It's, it's this kind of, you know, scale. But in a city of our size and given the, the sort of gun violence and the way we know it concentrates, can you talk at all about, you know, uh, if you have a Boston Uncornered along with a few of these other groups, is that really... Uh, enough to be sort of part of the explanation for why we've why we're why we're doing relatively well uh sure i mean so i'm gonna just do some like really crude back of the envelope calculations and you know others need to sort of follow up and 
and, and confirm these. But, you know, the last time I checked, you know, if you look at the data that, you know, the Boston Regional Intelligence Center, the BRIC puts out um, in Boston, there's about, I don't know, three to 500 high impact individuals, individuals who really are disproportionately driving the gun violence in the city. And, you know, if there's, uh, you know, a few organizations like Boston Uncornered handling, you know, around 50 people, we're probably covering about half of those individuals. So that's a lot better than a lot of cities, but it's not good enough. And I think that's like the right frame for Boston. You know, it's important to recognize that Boston is doing better than some places, but it's not enough. And we still have too much gun violence. And, uh, and we still need to do, uh, do much more. And, you know, we also have more learning to do. We all have to keep, you know, uh, keep trying to get better at, at what we do. Um, I just want to go back to sort of an, an earlier point that, uh, or, or, or issue that you raised about, um, you know, coddling uh, these individuals who are at the highest risk for either perpetrating gun violence or becoming victims. Because one thing about this phenomenon is that, you know, yesterday's victim is today's perpetrator and vice versa. So it's very hard to sort of sort out good guys from bad guys. You know, folks are really sort of trapped in a cycle and that's really the phenomenon. There's not a sort of, you know, white hat, black hat phenomenon happening. I think, you know, I often say that this is a little bit like marriage counseling and, you know, what marriage counselors tell folks, which is, you know, you want to be right or you want to be happy. And what I mean by that is, you know, do you want to do a bunch of moralizing that might make you feel good, but won't actually reduce violence? Or do you want to actually reduce violence? And so for me, um, I recognize that people are both a product of their environment, but that they also have agency and need to be held accountable. I'm for whatever works and for whatever keeps our city safer. And if these programs are doing a good job, and I think they are, then I think they deserve our, deserve our support. Uh, the other thing is, is that, you know, folks need to play their position. Um, you know, you don't want to ask, uh, you know, uh, outreach workers at Boston Cornered to play investigator. We have investigators. We have the Boston Police Department for that. And so, and no one, and you know, we should just comfort your listeners. Uh, you know, no one's looking the other way at Boston Police Department or at the Suffolk DA's office if someone is shooting someone or someone is killing someone. Those folks, if there's, you know, if there's evidence, uh, if there's probable cause to make an arrest, an arrest will be made. And if there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt, they will be convicted and go to prison. So, you know, I, I would just say, you know, uh, let's keep the moralizing to a minimum and let's just focus on keeping folks safe. And so what does that mean? You know, what the lessons from Boston and I kind of take your point, Thomas, and I think it's a really good one that, you know, there's a danger always in, you know, the kind of victory laps or resting on your laurels or whatever, however you might frame it about what's going on in Boston. Uh, but at the same time, it, it still seems to provide a pretty powerful model or roadmap. And I, and I just wonder how much of this is is kind of transferable, or the the kinds of elements that Boston has put together, uh, is that something that other cities should be looking to? Is it something that you think is is it is the absence of that really kind of glaring in a lot of these cities that are seeing 
such spikes in, in homicides? Well, you know, I, I've worked in uh, many of the most violent uh, cities around the country, and I live here in Boston. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of familiar with, with both. So let me sort of uh, contrast and compare. Uh, Boston had a period in the uh, mid 90s uh, that everyone or many people know as the Boston miracle, where a combination of efforts, uh, the Boston Gun Project, which is now known as Focused Deterrence or Ceasefire, uh, combined with the 10 Point Coalition, which was a, a faith-based uh, uh, group of African-American clergy, combined with a bunch of public health efforts led by a lot of the hospitals in Boston. And we had this remarkable period of success. And the interesting thing is that none of those formal initiatives uh, are, are sort of officially going on in Boston anymore. But the lessons that folks learned have been internalized by those people who are involved in the uh, sort of anti-violence community, either on the law enforcement side or on the non-law enforcement side. That is not the case in many of our most violent cities. It's not the case in Baltimore, Memphis, uh, Detroit, or Chicago. There, there isn't this, this period where people really saw how to do it and learned some general lessons. And the general lessons are, you know, things, things as simple as you gotta go right at the problem, meaning you gotta work with the highest risk people in places. Um, you gotta pay attention to research and data. So you gotta, you know, everybody's gotta have a few crime nerds on hand to help them understand the data and look at the research. Uh, it's also understanding that nothing can happen within the, within the community without the participation of the community. Uh, and that's really important. And that's something that, um, you know, Boston has had a pretty ugly racial history. Uh, um, and that's something that, you know, um, we had to learn the hard way in many ways. But in this space, I think we have learned it. And so those are some sort of fundamental things. And then I think we just need to be honest about uh, something, which is that Boston's a pretty wealthy city. And, uh, and we're fortunate to have, uh, you know, uh, more resources than some other cities. And that's, and, you know, that's just a good thing for us. And just as we sort of look to wrap up here, what's well, been a great conversation, let's look ahead a little bit. And I wondered... Uh, on the law enforcement side, which we haven't talked about as much as the community side, how you both see things or what you're hoping for. We're right on the cusp of the city uh, launching an effort to, to choose a new police commissioner. Mayor Wu just announced the uh, uh, members of, of the search committee. Uh, Tito, why don't you, you start with what, uh, you know, what are you hoping for out of that search, which is obviously going to land on a specific individual, but I think it's going to paint a broader picture of what of what the city is looking for. What should we be looking for, and how could you know a new commissioner help you know build on what's here and sort of drive down violence even further? And uh, or are there or do you have concerns about what you know what could happen that might send things in the wrong direction through that search? Uh, yeah, that's that's a great question. I, I think um, first and foremost, I think, you know, 
I'm very hopeful that we can continue to build um, and continue to disrupt generational urban poverty through this gang violence, through the community. Because I think that's it's bigger than just gang violence, right? Like this gang violence is perpetuated by other causes. And so I think that having, you know, um, Mayor Wu in office and, and, and being really cognizant of that, I think is important. I think in, with the police, um, bringing in somebody new, I think someone who understands the communities, these communities that are disproportionately impacted by gang violence and gun violence, um, and having familiarity with some of these communities, I think will help them to uh, to concentrate their efforts in a, in a, in a supportive way. Um, and I think that, you know, I think we're making a lot of progress as a city, and I think there's always room to grow, there's always room to get better. And as long as one young person is dying, um, there's room to get better. There's, there's reason for us to continue to do this work. Um, and so as long as we can continue to have dialogue, continue to communicate um, and familiarity, right? We know that generationally in this country, policing has not looked like the community in which they're policing. And so having some more, some more of that, having some more representation inside of that, representation of community members on the police force, like those kinds of things, which I think Boston is doing and is really cognizant of and aware of, and making a, con not just aware, but making a concentrated effort to address, continuing that work is going to be amazing. And I think we could be, you know, essentially one of the first cities to, to really, uh, put a damper on um, gun violence inside of urban communities that disproportionately impact young black and brown men. And Thomas, what do you think? What are you hoping to see in this search and in a new commissioner uh, that would move things forward? And are there concerns you have about, you know, any sort of, you know, reform impulses that you think might be maybe well-intentioned, but could be sort of a mistake to pursue at this point? Sure. I think that my my I, I would basically second uh, a lot of what uh, Tito said, and I think in particular the most important thing uh, for the next uh, leader of the Boston Police Department is that they share uh, the values uh, that we've been talking talking about here, which is that uh, they have to maintain close relationships uh, with uh, community leaders. And uh, if they're coming in from outside, they got to build those relationships uh, right away. And they also have to sort of authentically, uh, you know, represent the rank and file because it's one thing for police leadership to get it, but it's another thing for uh, everyday folks on patrol to get it. And so they've got to speak to those communities and really say, folks, we got to work together. I think the thing that I'm concerned about is that some of the hyperpolarized rhetoric that we hear around the country and that um, you know, is understandable in a lot of places, that it kind of infects what we do here in Boston. And so look, there are out of control police departments uh, around this country. And there are, and you know, the civil rights division at the US Department of Justice is identifying those. They didn't do that during the Trump administration, but they certainly are during the Biden administration. And, you know, investigating those departments, placing them under consent decrees and, you know, pushing very aggressive reforms. And, you know, BPD and the criminal justice system in, in Boston and Massachusetts is far from perfect. But I think it's important to not have that sort of incredibly hostile adversarial attitude towards uh, uh, the police uh, and prosecutors here. Uh, we could do a lot worse um, here than we are. And so what I would, and you know, one, I'll give you something in particular that concerns me. 
you know, uh, there's a lot of people, I think even uh, Mayor Wu has called for, uh, you know, abandoning the BRIC, the Boston Regional Intelligence Center. Which is what, if you can help the listeners? The, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a center that uses data to identify uh, the highest risk individuals in the, in the city, uh, those who are most likely to become victims or perpetrators of gun violence, among other things. And you know, some of that is understandable because these kinds of databases have been misused in the past. And sometimes they can create sort of a dragnet that can catch up for black and brown people uh, who haven't done anything wrong. But to my knowledge, there is no actual evidence that that's ever happened with the BRIC. And one of the things that we need to do in order to shrink the intrusiveness of the law enforcement system is to be very, very targeted and, and to be pro-data and pro-science. And so I just hope that you know, folks recognize that you know, Boston is a special place and that uh, while people have concerns, they should really look for actual problems before they throw stuff at Great. Well, uh, Thomas Apt, Senior Fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice, uh, thanks so much for talking today. My pleasure. And Tito Santos Silva, the Executive Director of Boston Uncornered. It was great to have you here on the podcast. It was an honor to be here with you both. Thank you so much. And I'm Michael Jonas at Commonwealth Magazine. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you again next week.